I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. For 19 years, people have gathered in East Nashville to celebrate tomatoes. There are all kinds of vendors, live music, a recipe contest, a parade, and of course, the event that started it all, the Tomato Art Show. Today, we'll talk with one of the founders of the festival and slice into the world of tomatoes with a master gardener, a professor of agriculture, a top chef, and one of this year's recipe contest winners. But first, in less than two weeks, Tennessee's statewide abortion ban will take effect, leaving millions without the right to an abortion, with no exceptions for rape, incest, or the risk of suicide. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic Ocean in Ireland, abortion rights have been moved in the opposite direction. The right to an abortion was added to Ireland's constitution in 2018. How are journalists in these two very different countries covering the abortion debate? And what can we learn about how opinions and laws change? WPLN Newsroom Director Emily Siner is headed to Ireland with a Fulbright scholarship to study this. She joins us now. Hey, Emily. Hey, Khalil. How are you? I'm doing well. Wonderful. So, you know, you've covered the abortion debate as a reporter here at WPLN, right? Yes. Um, I actually started uh, in 2014 when I moved to Nashville to be a reporter here. And it was one of the first big story threads that I was able to follow. Um, it was when... Tennessee was adding, uh, considering adding a, a constitutional amendment, Amendment 1 in 2014, um, that would basically make it clear that the state does not, the state constitution does not protect abortion rights. Mm -hmm. And this was something that, um, you know, the, the campaign was going on when I, when I moved here and I followed it through the election and kind of saw the aftermath of that too. Okay. So jump forward. Why Ireland? Why now? So, um, you know, I, I got really interested in abortion law and how that changed from covering the constitutional amendment here in 2014. And so on just a vacation in Ireland in 2018, I, I noticed all these signs that were clearly kind of like, I mean, out of the exact same playbook that I saw here mm. on some signs, there were pictures of babies and on other signs, there were, you know, slogans about choice. And I um, started to do some research and realized that Ireland was voting on a constitutional amendment that would do the exact opposite of what it did here. It added, as you said, it added a constitutional right to an abortion um, across the country for the first time in the country's history. And so I've just been really fascinated by how different places um, can move in these different directions. And then, um, and then also just as we are kind of starting this renewed debate about abortion here in Tennessee and across the country. I feel like it's really important to see uh, what other countries have done and learn from them, because this isn't the only place mm -hmm. where that has had these conversations. OK, so give us a quick timeline on the abortion rights debate in Ireland. So um, abortion had always been illegal there. It was a very Catholic country, very socially conservative. And in the 80s, following actually in response to Roe v. Wade in, in the U.S., hmm. uh, they passed a constitutional amendment to explicitly outlaw abortion. They were worried that one day when Ireland was maybe less Catholic, that um, the Supreme Court in Ireland would rule the same way that the Supreme Court here rule and say that abortion was constitution constitutionally protected. So to like preempt that possibility of ever happening, mm. they uh, got a, a, a constitutional amendment passed. It was called Amendment 8. And from then on, you know, it was a total ban on abortion, no exceptions. Uh, but what was interesting is over the next few decades, there came to be these little loopholes as people started to confront some of the realities of a total ban. So, you know, in the 90s, there was a, a girl who was raped and um, the court allowed her to go to England to get an abortion. 
um, they started saying that, you know, doctors could tell people about the possibility of going to England. They added an exception for the uh, a risk of suicide, which is something that Tennessee's ban now does not include. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2012, there was a high profile death. So a woman who was miscarrying died uh, because... Uh, she was in the process of miscarrying, but the doctors wouldn't perform the procedure because the fetus still had a heartbeat. And they said that would qualify as an abortion. And so um, over the course of the time that it took for the, the fetus to naturally die, she got an, she got an infection and died. Um, and that caused this kind of national movement around abortion rights. So in 2018, the country was like very much in the place that I think anti-abortion activists worried about. You know, 35 years earlier, people were ready to have abortion rights. And they they legalized it. Okay, so compare all of that to what's been happening here in Tennessee. How do those two countries and timelines, how do they relate to each other? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like Tennessee's heyday of abortion rights was, I would say, in probably 2000. That was when the Tennessee Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution of the state actually like included additional protections for abortion. So it was it was more illegal here in some ways than the rest of the country. Um, that meant that certain restrictions on abortion couldn't be passed anymore. There, there could be no more waiting periods or no, no more man, mandatory informed consent that doctors have to get from their patients. Um, and then as soon as that happened, it kind of sparked this like backlash from conservatives who um, that's when they started to to have the process of creating a constitutional amendment to undo that. So it's kind of like what I see in both both places is just this like back and forth of people trying to kind of like secure the right or the um, the prohibition of abortion in the Constitution and then the other side coming and trying to take it away. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're still seeing that just in kind of opposite directions. Okay, so what are Irish journalists doing in their coverage that really stands out to you about this issue? One thing that I noticed um, that was really interesting is that there seemed to be this uh, this understanding that abortion was typically covered as a political issue and a, f- a frustration with that. So I, I started to see a lot of Irish media um, trying to find people who had had abortions or who had decided not to have abortions. Um, and, you know, like the Irish Times put a call out for people to tell tell this uh, paper about their abortion stories and they publish those. And that was actually part of the reason why we decided to do that this summer um, to try to get more like personal nuanced stories about um, the relationship with abortion and reproductive rights on our air. Um, One thing that also I find really interesting that I I suspect will start to happen in the United States more is that um, Irish journalists, especially female Irish journalists, started writing about their own abortion stories, Mm -hmm. which I have to imagine. I I know that the Irish journalism landscape is different than it is here, but I have to imagine there are some pretty robust conversations in the newsrooms about whether that was allowed and how quickly that was allowed. Um, But, you know, you definitely saw kind of this greater transparency, uh, I think, on both sides of like how journalists felt um, in their their public life as well. So, you know, you obviously applied to this before Roe versus Wade was overturned. How has that decision, the Dobbs decision, how has it changed the plan for your research? Yeah. Um, when I, when the decision first came down, my first thought was like, well, shoot, now that, you know, I don't have to go anywhere else to talk about this. Like Mm. we're having these conversations in our newsroom every week. Um, but I do think it's interesting to see in a place where there, there has been a decision Kind of, I feel like we're just at a different moment in time than Ireland is right now. Like we're very much, at, it feels like at the beginning of this debate, 
the decision opened up all of these conversations within each state about how much to restrict it. Um, whereas Ireland feels like right now, at least, it's in a slightly more settled place. And I think sometimes when you're in a place where you can kind of look back a little bit more, you just you see insights that you can't see in the moment. So I'm interested, my research is going to be talking to journalists about how they covered the abortion debate and um, trying to gain insights, you know, now with kind of the perspective of time that we can apply more quickly here. Okay, so how do you plan to apply what you've learned over the next three months and how we cover abortion here in the WPLN newsroom? I mean, when I, um, over the course of my my grant there, I'll be um, sharing takeaways, but then especially when I get back, just kind of sharing um, the things that I find most interesting, uh, things that I think we can apply here. I mean, that's, I, I feel like, throughout the entire time there, that will be like what I am mostly thinking of. Mm. Um, that is my my primary purpose for going. Well, we're going to miss you. And we're very, very happy and excited for you. We wish you safe travels. Thank you so much. Emily Siner is the newsroom director at WPLN. She's stepping back from her newsroom role for a Fulbright scholarship that is taking her to Ireland for three months. Thank you so much for being here, Emily. Have fun. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll head out to East Nashville for the kickoff of this year's Tomato Art Fest this past weekend. What is your favorite way to eat tomatoes? Do you have a great recipe? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Over the weekend, tens of thousands of people flocked to East Nashville or just walked out their front door to celebrate all things tomato. That's right, the annual Tomato Art Fest took over five points for the 19th time, and our senior producer Steve Harouche was there for the opening parade. The first tomato parade floats are just starting to show up at the corner of 12th and Russell. And a crowd is already starting to gather. Everyone is wearing something red. I see a red tutu, a tomato costume with a green stem hat, and that giant mouthed monster head thing from Beetlejuice, but with tomatoes for eyes. You get the idea. This is Corey Effort's first year marching in the parade, and his company's float is nowhere to be seen. Yeah, it's not here yet. Okay. <laughs> it's like a salad, so it's just a flat platform and we it looks like we're in grass or some kind of greenery um, and we're gonna be just chilling on there and screaming our heads off and having a great time. It's actually my first time at Tomato Art Fest, so I'm super excited. I'm gonna be screaming Happy Tomato Day all day long. This is definitely not the first tomato parade for Hosanna Banks and Carrie Fanning who is wearing a straw hat with oversized cherry tomatoes going all the way around the brim. She's also wearing a tomato bandolier. Yeah, let's call it a tomato bandolier. Hosanna and Carrie's team, the Tomato Crew, started meeting in June to plan for this. Their float looks like a big red newspaper distribution box, and it's plastered in stickers. Our float is um, a play on the Nashville scenes, uh, You're So Nashville If, and we are the Nashville Lycopene, and um, we are You're So Tomato, if you are, and then we each have a different character, basically. <laughs> I'm saucy, we have still ripening, homegrown, um, heirloom, early girl, 
tomato pie. Yeah, so we have a Bloody Mary judge. We have a Bloody Mary judge. And a Bloody Mary. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it's just fun. Everybody comes up with their own costume. We get together, make fascinators every year. Someone just handed you something. Can you describe what we're seeing? <laughs> it is my my fascinator. It's three cans, sauce cans. It's very high and uh, tippy. I'm gonna have to like plaster it to my head. <laughs> so. Yes. Hosanna is wearing three tomato sauce cans on top of her head. I want to jump in and just yes. say I'm from Indianapolis, and what brought me, made me, is the, the theme, a uniter, not a divider. And I think that just really summarizes this whole parade, and it's wonderful. Kara isn't the only one who's come a long way for this. People come from all over. Polly Block is from the neighborhood, though. She's 11, and her Girl Scout troop came with a float today. This is a rainbow that um, represents a tomato art fest. Um, I like seeing all my friends and I like hearing the sounds and being able to be in it. I'm looking forward to seeing all the hard work that people put into everything that they did as well. At this point, the street is full and everywhere you look, it's a sea of red. There's a guy in a flight suit and helmet, a bit of a maverick, pushing a red fighter jet shaped contraption that says Top Mater on the side. If that pun isn't hitting for you, how about this? His daughter is carrying a sign that says Highway to the Mater Zone. Kevin is here to play in the band at the front of the parade. This has really grown since we first did it. We did the first one, so it has grown tremendously. Just to see the people out having a good time, man. Just a great time. Did you ever think you would get this big? No, <laughs> but it has. What, it was really, it like, what was it like the first year? It, was, it may have been this many people right here in the whole parade, so people were just out the house interested, just, just poking out, looking out the door, and now when we go through, it's a, whole, it's a whole different thing right now. And just like that, it's time to get started. There's the Nashville Lycopene, the Girl Scout Rainbow, Top Mater, and yes, Corey's salad float made it in time. There are Titans cheerleaders, and I'm pretty sure I see Karen Johnson, the Davidson County Register of Deeds, marching too. But arguably, the star of the show is the East Nashville High School Marching Band. The drummers and horn players are all dressed in red. And the drum line? They brought the thunder all right. There's no better proof of that than all the car alarms they set off along the parade route. Here with me now is the very woman who founded the Tomato Art Fest nearly two decades ago, Meg McFadgen. Welcome to This is Nashville. Oh, 
I'm so happy to be here. Just listening to that last part made me so happy. I almost relived the whole day over again. Oh, that's awesome. You know, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, as we mentioned, this was the 19th annual fest. I mean, yes, it was. 19 years is a long time. It is a long time. Give me the origin story. How did it get started? Well, you know, uh, it was just this whole series of things that happened and conversations that were had. And uh, my friend Diane came to me afterwards and said, you know, you should do a tomato art show in your gallery. And I was like, we should do that because tomatoes are my favorite part of summer. And um, so we did. And it was just really done kind of tongue-in-cheek. We invited all the artists that uh, we knew to create tomato art, and they did. And uh, really out of the gate, we had almost floor-to-ceiling tomato-inspired artwork. And at that very first art opening, for some reason I will never know, a thousand people showed up. A thousand people. also, for another reason I will never know, they were wearing costumes. A lot of them were. And so it just started out being this really fun, festive thing. And then even the motto, uh, before the show opened, my husband walked up from the back, um, we had the gallery together, and he had made this sign that said, the tomato, a uniter, not a divider, bringing together fruits and vegetables, and just plopped it down in front of the building. Mm-hmm. And it, just almost out of the gate, it just had the magic, if that makes sense. It does. It does make sense. You know, how did it continue to grow into be this cultural phenomenon that it is well, now? Well, you know, funnily enough, at the very original art show, I have a friend that said, wow, I feel a festival coming on. And I'm like, maybe so. And of course, I had no idea what I was doing. And the funny thing is, is she swears she never said it, but Mm. I sure did hear her say it. So the next year we decided we'd give it a try. And so it just, we put booths in all the side yards. You know, this was definitely my dad has a barn. Let's put on a show. So we did everything we could with no money whatsoever. And probably the second year, maybe 3,000 people came. And just every year after that, it just grew and grew and grew. And each year, the crowd would double. And each year, we'd have to, you know, like, oh, dear, we better close roads. Oh, dear, we better do this. And really, I will say that I think what made the festival grow more than anything was the people of East Nashville. Back in the day when my husband and I opened our gallery there, there was a handful of small businesses that were, you know, just trying to make a go of it. And the people of that neighborhood, you would almost have to be the meanest person in the world and have nothing to sell for them not to try to support you. And so anything you tried to do, they were all in. And when we did this festival, the people of East Nashville showed up, and they wore costumes, and they played. And they would come to me and say, hey, you should probably do this event. And I said, you know what? If you do the event, I'll promote it for you. And they would. And they would tell their friends. And so really, I think it was just it took a village. That's what made it grow. Mm -hmm. Now, Meg, tell me, I mean, what is it? About tomatoes, it's a whole festival, and you get—you were talking. People are wearing costumes. People are wearing red. There's a fashion show. What is it? That's a lot for one humble fruit. What is it about tomatoes that makes this so special? You know, 
I don't know either, but I guess tomatoes just make people happy. They're red, they're juicy, they're delicious. You know, there is a whole contingent of mater haters that come, but they mm. still come. <laughs> but um, I don't know truly what made it happen other than just everyone was so enthused, and it was just a great way for people to get out of the house and meet their neighbors and just have fun. The thing that I love so much about Tomato Art Fest is it's the one day of year that people kind of set all their troubles away and just come out and play. It mm. is truly my favorite day of the year. It's the happiest day of the year. You know, it takes a lot of people to pull this off on such a large scale. Who, yes. who helped you out as it grew? Well, now, as it was growing, it truly was all volunteers from the neighborhood. Somewhere in the middle, and I don't even remember what exact year it is, and I apologize for this, um, a friend of mine introduced me to another who is now my close friend, Jack Davis, and he had a background in events. So he came on board and started taking over a lot of the, you know, just make it happen things. I mean, I'm good at art shows, but I realized I was definitely reaching my level of incompetence. So he came in with his crew and took over. And since my husband and I have retired from the gallery, uh, he has taken over the entire festival, except for I still get to pick the art and hang the show and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, they have done such an incredible job of making the festival grow, and they love it like we loved it. And so they somehow keep the intimacy and the uh, joy of it as it's growing into this behemoth of a festival. Now, I'd like to introduce my next guests, both of whom are tomato fans, to say the least. Chris De Jesus and Lance Dupree, welcome. To this is Nashville. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, Lance, I understand you've been entering the Tomato Fest recipe contest for years, including this year. Yes. I also heard you never won. So, tell us, how did you come home with the gold? Did you come home with the gold this year? Yeah, I won uh, first place and most artistic. Congratulations, my friend. How does yeah, it feel? It felt great. You know, after all the years, I, w I took for granted this year I hadn't, uh, I hadn't won. And then Mike Smith uh, texted me last night and asked. I didn't even want to text and ask. I was like, oh, all that work, and I've lost again. <laughs> so what? tell me the dish. What was the dish that took first place? Uh, I did a tomato mousse bouche, mm -hmm. and so it was just bites. Uh, I did a, uh, a savory uh, tomato bread pudding, a deviled tomato, uh, and then I carved tulips, and I made a flower pot, and it was— uh, tomato stuffed mozzarella to look like a tulip uh, thing. And so the whole tray was a display. Wow, that sounds absolutely delicious. Now, I understand your first entry was kind of intricate and detailed. Tell me about that dish the first time you entered the contest. I think it was a tomato tart. And so uh, I did the tart and uh, I grew the tomatoes. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a farm, and so I grew the tomatoes. Uh, I made it with a bone, uh, a bone broth. I also had cows, and so I made the bone broth out of the bones, and uh, then made the tart uh, filling. You know, and I wrote all of that up, but I'm just not sure they. You know, I'm sure I was the only one there that uh, raised everything that was in this dish. Wow! You know? Even the bone broth. Yeah. Wow. That is dedication. Did you yeah. grow up eating tomatoes? No. Uh, you know, my grandmother and my great-grandmother 
always told everybody that only girls ate tomatoes. Hmm. And so none of the fam- men in my family ever ate tomatoes. <laughs> and then when I got to be an adult, I tried a tomato and I was like, I can eat tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, great grandma was wrong. <laughs> yeah. Now, Chris, yep. you know, your restaurant, Butcher and Bee, just wrapped up Tomato Week. For sure. What's the inspiration behind that? So, um, being the chef of Butcher and Bee, um, our menu is vegetable focused. I think the, uh, it was the Nashville scene one time called us the most vegetarian, non vegetarian restaurant in Nashville. Okay. And so uh, I lean very heavy heavy on vegetables when I think of our menu. Um, we almost let our farmers determine our menu here. Um, we uh, use a lot of local farmers around the area, and my favorite season of cooking is summer. Um, we have a farmer that we use in town um, by the name of Samantha Lamb who runs the Farm and Fiddle Um who grows the most delicious tomatoes I've ever seen. I'm from New Jersey, um, where my grandfather uh, had an amazing garden. I grew up eating tomatoes when I was young. Um, and her tomatoes are out of this world. She grows several different varieties from sun gold cherry tomatoes, which are just like candy, to mm. the Tennessee heirloom Cherokee purples, um, to sauce tomatoes, all different varieties. And so... We did, originally last year, we did one tomato, we did a Sunday tomato dinner uh, with Samantha, and then this year was the first year that we did the whole tomato week, um, because we just felt like one day wasn't enough, and we just really went all in and did about six or seven dishes featuring mainly the tomato. Wow. Um, and it was a great success, actually. We're um, already looking forward to next year. I'm from New Jersey as well, and my grandmother put me onto tomato cucumber salad back when I was a kid. That's a, that's a staple. That is. That <laughs> is. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about tomatoes with Tomato Art Fest founder Meg McFadgen, chef Chris, Chris De Jesus, and tomato enthusiast Lance Dupree. All right, so I'm already hungry. What are some of the dishes you all featured in this year's Tomato Week? Um, so, one of the one of the small plate dishes, uh, a couple of small plates that we did. Uh, one of my favorites, actually, uh, we did is a very simple um, dish that we did. It's called a malawak. Um, it's a layered flatbread. Um, and also known as a Yemenite pancake. Um, It's a layered flatbread, uh, similar to like a pita or a naan, um, thinly rolled out, layered on top of each other, and then on the flat top. But what it's served with is just grated tomato, garlic, salt in in a bowl, and a little bit of hot sauce inside. Mm. Um, and so why I love that so much is it just showcases the tomato in its raw form. Um, we chose the Cherokee purple for that, uh, dish, um, mainly because it's the Tennessee heirloom variety and, um, we want to really showcase that, uh, tomato. Um, but just cause they're so delicious and you get to really experience a tomato with just a simple piece of bread, which, uh, we made in house and cooked from raw to order when you order it. 
Um, and so it was just the warm, uh, fresh bread with the freshly grated tomato. Um, and it was mm-hmm. just one of my favorites. I see you brought some stuff to whip up one of your I dishes did. featuring. This is also uh, probably a staff favorite uh, for sure. I probably hear from the staff uh, almost every day that this is one of their favorites that we've put on the menu. Um, typically, I lean towards the tomato and peach salad, uh, but I decided to switch it up this year. Um, this is our tomato plum salad here. Mm. Um, so I have a mixture of dinosaur plums and red plums. Um, we use some pink boar tomatoes, uh, from Samantha. These are our late season, um, heirloom tomatoes. We have some Juan Flam. Uh, they're a little, um, bright orange salad tomatoes. Um, my favorite sun gold, uh, cherry tomatoes. They are super sweet. Um, and then a couple green zebra heirloom tomatoes. Um, we're tossing it with a vinaigrette, very simple. It's just olive oil, um, sumac, uh, it's a spice, uh, Middle Eastern, uh, has a sort of, uh, lemon flavor to it. Mm-hmm. Um, nigella seed, uh, which is kind of a, it's a seed from a flower. Uh, it's kind of a mild onion flavor. Um, and then orange blossom water. Um, okay. uh, Gentle, you got to be gentle with it, but it's a really nice uh, floral flavor. Um, the green in here, which I find to be almost as delicious as the tomatoes, uh, it's a gretty. Uh, it's a sea lettuce uh, from the Mediterranean. Uh, it's almost like a succulent. Um, we get that from Sow and Harvest in Murfreesboro. Um, they water it with salt water, which is probably the most interesting part. So it absorbs the salt water from the roots uh, to mimic its uh, natural habitat on the coast of the Mediterranean. Okay, I can't uh, wait to try this. Which is out of this world. It just it blows any other typical mixed green out of the water. Um, and that's just the simpleness of the salad. We're serving it on top of a yogurt. Ever since I started working at Butcher and Bee, I want to put yogurt on everything now. Um, and it just, the creaminess with the dressing goes perfectly here. This is a thickened yogurt called labna, a little bit more orange blossom water in there, um, and some raw garlic. And then we're going to top it with some lemon basil uh, to bring back more floral notes and some lemon balm uh, as well. So lots of herbs, Mm -hmm. fresh tomatoes, just keeping it simple. It reminds me of like a summer night. Yes, and it smells absolutely fantastic in here. You know, as as you're getting that ready for us to taste, and thank you very much for bringing that in. You know, Lance, you know, what crosses your mind when you're you're coming up with these recipes? What's your inspiration? Well, the the contest itself tells your inspiration. They give you a topic that you have to, and then you've just got to create off their topic. So how are you, when you, when you get the topic, like for this year, what did you what did you map out to do? How how were you going about that creative process? <clears throat> I do design for a living, residential design, and so uh, I w- with this it's a little more crafty because it's the tomato fest. So I try to craft it up instead of just a clean design like you would see at a restaurant. And so uh, I just started laying out the did the, the design, and then I uh, started picking. It was four 
four places on the tray, and then I started studying to find those four dishes I wanted for the bite-sized mm-hmm. uh, tomatoes. Now, Meg, how does it feel to hear somebody so enthusiastic and dedicated to win first place at your festival? It, you have no idea how it thrills me. Mm. <laughs> it makes me want to eat everything they've been talking about, too. <laughs> I know. I'm bet I'm about to myself. <laughs> you know, okay, so we're in the middle of tomato season. Chris, why is this really a great time for chefs? Um this I mean, you know, the weather this summer has been crazy. Um and you know, it's taken a lot of adjusting from our farmers. Um but really it's actually been a great tomato year. Um it's you know, our, a lot of our farmers grow them, you know, in hoop houses indoors. A lot of them have come up with different uh, trellising techniques and watering techniques to kind of, you know, combat the weather and adjust to. Um, so I feel like the heat and everything has just really brought out the sweetness in the, in the tomatoes this year. Mm. Um, and they are probably the best tomatoes that I've had. And the best part about tomato season is it lasts until the end of October, which okay. when I first moved to Nashville blows my mind. I that The first year I moved here, I was blown away with how long tomato season lasts and very excited as well. Um, and so it's so easy, you know, when, they, when we talked about doing a whole week, it was just, I mean, it was easy for, you know, us to come up with. I could have done probably my whole menu with tomato items on it. Yes, um, and I'm sure I, I could eat that entire menu. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely going to eat that one day, but we, we have to end for now. I want to thank you all so much for being on the show. That was Chris De Jesus, chef at Butcher and B. He was joined with Tomato Art Fest founder Meg McFadgen and Mr. Lance Dupree, who took home first place for the most artistic recipe at this year's Tomato Art Fest. Thank you all for being here, and thanks for making me hungry. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn how to grow healthy tomatoes with a master gardener and a professor who studies pest insects. Are you growing tomatoes? How did they turn out? Tweet us your questions for the experts at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Lily Colonna, and this is Nashville. I do not have a green thumb. I thought about growing tomatoes, but I'm a little bit intimidated by the idea. How much do I water? When are my seedlings ready to transfer? What about pests? Joining me now with answers is Master Gardener Joan Clayton Davis, who heads up the Speakers Bureau for Master Gardeners of Tennessee, and Dr. Kashalya Amarosekaria. She is the Associate Professor at Tennessee State University College of Agriculture. Joan, Dr. Kashalya, thank you so much. Welcome to This is Nashville. My pleasure. So us. thank you. Thank you so much. And we talked about this before the break, but I have to know, Joan, what is your favorite way to eat tomatoes? Actually, just a plain tomato sandwich. A t- what goes on that? A wheat bread, Miracle Whip, and a half inch slice of tomato. That's it. That's it. 
That sounds really tasty. Hmm. Kashalia? Oh, I like to put it in my <clears throat> salad, leafy greens and tomatoes and maybe some shredded chicken. Okay. Every day my lunch is mostly like that. Okay. Okay. And every day of lunch, that's healthy. You're beating most of us out on the healthy tip. Now, now Joan, you've brought some tomatoes into the studio. What am I looking at? Those look beautiful. Uh, these are um, sweet 100 cherry tomatoes. And it's uh, I have one cherry tomato plant, and this is in the uh, Tennessee State University uh, College of Agriculture Community Garden. And uh, they are a very sweet uh, tomato and very easy to grow. They are prolific um, producers of cherry tomatoes. I have uh, about a, uh, the container I have is uh, about a quart to half, uh, half a gallon that I picked last night at seven o'clock. You, and I'll have this many more in two to three days. You picked these last night. May I have one? Sure. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay, here we go. Tell me what you think. Mm. Delicious. Good. I'm sorry to talk with my mouth full of food, Mom, if you're listening. Um, okay, so I have something for you. Our afternoon editor, Julia, Richer, Julia Ritchie, brought us some pineapple ground cherry tomatoes from Bouvard, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. They're covered in a little husk, so we don't want to eat that. But just in case for later on, those are for you. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, mm -hmm. Joan, tell me, what is a master gardener? A master gardener is a volunteer who works as an extension of the Cooperative Extension Service. We are trained by University of Tennessee uh, College of Agriculture, uh, the Institute of Agriculture, and work collaboratively here in Davidson County uh, with Tennessee State University's College of Agriculture. But each master gardener is trained basically one college semester or one semester, uh, a minimum of 40 hours uh, in class work, and then 40 hours of volunteer work. Mm -hmm. And then you become certified as a master gardener and you must continue continuing education every year uh, to maintain certification. And then we go out and volunteer to help uh, the community learn about how to horticulture, growing things, and um, how to keep your yards good. But I specialize in growing vegetables. In growing vegetables. All right, so let's talk some tomatoes, or is that a fruit? We'll answer that at a different time. So how many different types of tomatoes are there, and what are the differences in how we grow a few of them? Oh, gosh, there are lots and lots of different types of tomatoes. Mm -hmm. And when we um, talk with folks about growing tomatoes when they're deciding, do I really want to grow tomatoes? I have no green thumb. Uh, we ask them uh, what you want to use your tomatoes for. Okay. Uh, do you want to can them and freeze them? Do you want to make sauces? Those kinds of things. And the first choice is uh, in deciding is do you want what is called a determinate tomato mm -hmm. or an indeterminate tomato? What's the difference? Why is that important? Uh, the determinate tomatoes are tomatoes that uh, grow not quite as tall as the uh, indeterminate. And, and it grows, produces its fruit, and uh, has a, a harvest time of about 
uh, four weeks. Once it grows, it's done. Okay. The indeterminate, uh, as a as a vine, continues to grow um, until frost will kill it. Okay. And uh, it gets much taller, and requires staking. Okay. Now, what is the best time of year to plant our tomatoes? In uh, Tennessee, in Middle Tennessee particularly, we have basically three planting seasons. Our early spring season, the warm season, which starts about May, 1st of May, and then the fall garden. So tomatoes, it's best uh, about the last week of April, first week of May. The soil needs to be a certain temperature in order for the, the roots to gain hold and grow well. Okay, so the optimal time to paint our, to plant our tomatoes is in May. And Kashalia, you've studied this specifically. What pests are around that pose a danger to these precious young tomato plants during that time? So at the beginning, <clears throat> uh, when they are very, very young stage, like five, six leaves, uh, they are the seedling stage. There are a few pests that are, can uh, injure them and, and kind of kill them. So some of them are flea beetles, aphids, uh, and then also uh, cutworms. They are kind of like uh, moth larvae that can cut the plant from the bottom. So these three uh, pests are kind of critical at the young stage. Uh, flea beetles are like really small, about one-tenth in size kind of brownish blackish looking and they're the one jumps when you uh, jump when you disturb them mm -hmm. and uh, if you see in the plants with a lot of holes like somebody shot them uh, that's the flea beetle damage uh, we call it shot uh, shot hole uh, appearance of the leaves so uh, if there are many that can destroy i mean kill the plant uh, so uh, so at the very beginning, when the seedling is so young, we have to protect them because even the plant wouldn't die. Uh, you create a, like a weak plant later and then uh, that might die anyway with some kind of other disease or something, another pest attack. So to create a strong plant, we have to protect them. So a lot of people do like, you, you need to monitor the pest. Uh, you can put like yellow, white sticky cards. Some people put some covers. And also they appear like midday, so you can spray water and deter, I mean, deter them. Uh, and also another best thing to do is grow some companion plants like flowering plants, uh, like marigold, sunflower, cosmos. Um, most of the flowering plants would work. That will attract good bugs to your field, and then they will control these bad ones, so like flea beetles. And the other one is the most common other pest is aphids. There are two types. One is called potato aphids that looks like kind of pinkish looking. Mm -hmm. Another one is green peach aphid. Uh, they are, you can find them underside of the leaf, very soft bodied. And uh, they are, um, if you see ants in, on your plant, then probably you have aphids. So they can, uh, they can, they can, their population can explode really quickly. So it's really good to monitor the plants at the young stage and, and uh, these are also controlled by good bugs because a lot of uh, these good bugs like these soft-bodied uh, insects, so like lady beetles, green lacewing, spiders, 
flowerfly larvae, uh, are many more, there are many more, even spiders. They are really good at controlling these pests. So the third one is the cutworm. Uh, uh, it's a, it's a uh, night flying, larvae of night flying moth. That one also, uh, that one, the damage is they cut the plant from the bottom. So if you yeah. inspect the evening, uh, late afternoon, evening, they try to attack. In the morning, if you check your plants are cut from uh, from the base, then that's a nut uh, cut from damage. Okay. And one way to control is uh, to wrap them around with a aluminum foil or put a cardboard uh, or plastic cup, bottom cut cardboard cup or plastic cup. So it's like a it's like a cover to uh, stop them attacking your plants. Well, I know a quick and easy thing to do would be to spray some insecticide, but what do you think of that plan? <laughs> so if you're a commercial grower, that's what they do, and a lot of these pests are controlled, but then you destroy all the whole sustainable agriculture system. You can kill all the good bugs too. So we are talking about small farmers or so some people going for fun, just backyard, and even you don't have land, people like to put a tomato plant or two in your, in a, in a uh, pot and grow. So so we are kind of focusing on those, those small growers and even organic growers who don't have that many, um, uh, I mean, capacity to spray insecticide. So, so the bottom line is we have to, uh, attract good bugs to the system that are naturally controlling them. It's a free service they provide. What we, we have to give to get some help. So what mm -hmm. we can do is provide some pollen, uh, uh, flower nectar, honeydew stuff. So we go good plant, flowering plants to attract them. You don't have to have many of them, but at least like few of marigold. A lot of people grow marigold. I have seen sunflowers are good and also cosmos and other, there are some other plants that you can grow. Uh, root bakery is good and these are some are perennial plants so you don't have to grow every year if you put them in a special place in a garden that you don't disturb often so that will come out the next year as well okay if you're just tuning in this is nashville and i'm your host khalil Colonna. we're talking with master gardener joan clayton davis and dr kashalia g amarasakaria now about how to grow and protect your tomato plants. Okay, so Joan, we get past that first stage of our plants and they're healthy. What quickly, what are some of the other stages of our tomato plant growth and what should we be monitoring? Well, the professor mapped it out. You want to monitor your plants every day, mm -hmm. every day uh, for pests, uh, anything that uh, could impact it. You want to water properly. Uh, you want to provide fertilizer at the appropriate time based on the particular uh, cultivar of the uh, tomato you have. And uh, monitoring, staking it if it's a, a type of tomato that needs staking, stake, staking it at the proper time. So those are the things that you want to definitely uh, be mindful of always. Now, aside from other pests, you know, I mean, insects, what other type of pests are there out there that we should be paying attention to? Well, it depends on uh, what's in your environment. In many backyard gardens, we have, uh, we have uh, deer, we have mm. rabbits, we have squirrels, we have other kinds of animals uh, that can get into the garden area and cause havoc to your plants. Okay. What are some signs that we should look out for that 
our plant is asking us, please, please help me? What are some of the ways we can tell just by looking at our plant that it'll need well, help? Well, if you're monitoring every day, you're going to notice if your leaves are standing up firmly, if they are looking healthy and smiling back at you. Okay. And um, that's basically it, is that you have to monitor and you must maintain uh, your soil, your watering. Most tomatoes will need uh, about an inch to an inch and a half of water per week, uh, but you don't want to overwater. You don't want to water um, uh, your foliage. It's best to water at the base and um, just maintain your area. Keep weeds out because weeds will uh, fight for the nutrients mm -hmm. that the tomato plant needs. Okay. Now, after we harvest our tomatoes, what should we do with our soil? Well, it depends on what you plan to do. Uh, one of the things that we always uh, suggest is that people rotate. Mm -hmm. If you plant tomatoes in an area this year, you want to plant something else in another family of plants. For instance, uh, you might want to plant things that were uh, in the peas or beans uh, family uh, or in the cabbage family. You want to rotate such that, uh, for instance, the beans can help add nitrogen to the soil, which helps with the growth of the plants in the early stages and keep the, the leaves um, healthy. But you also um, want to make sure that uh, if there are uh, viruses or bacteria or fungi that have been uh, identified, you might want to treat that uh, some do it through what's called solarization, um, which is basically you can put like a, a black cloth down and let the sun bake it and bake it and bake it, which mm. will help uh, improve the soil for the next year. You can also plant what's called cover crops. Um, sometimes uh, there are certain kinds of uh, radishes that you can plant that will help build up the soil for the next year. Wonderful. That was Master Gardener Joan Clayton Davis. She was joined by Dr. Kashalia G. Amara Kasaria. I want to thank you both for being with us so much. And I think I'm brave enough. I'm going to try to plant some tomatoes next year. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we learn about peer support and what drives the folks who help people in active recovery. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki, the master masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Mary Ward and Roz Lewis. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.